Amen, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Tell somebody they look good this morning. This is my wife. Jokes on everybody else. I got her. Man, guys, thankful for the presence of God? Good, good. You got Bibles this morning? <laughs> I love it. Go ahead, uh, pull out your Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. If you'd like one, we'd love to give one to you. If you don't want one, that is totally your decision. And hopefully I don't die tripping over these cables this morning. You doing all right this Sunday? Good. You guys expecting to hear from God? Good. Every week I stand up here and I'm just like, man, this is a good looking church. I love it. I love it. <laughs> awesome. You know when you get uh, that, that sense of something? You ever get that sense in life where you just, you, you don't know what's going on. You feel like something's about to happen. You can't put language to it, but you just kind of, you sense it. You know, like you don't have to be a genius, but like when you're watching scary movies and that girl's walking all by herself at midnight through the woods, you're just like, I, I don't feel good about this. I, I just, I got, I have a sense that something's about to happen, or maybe, maybe you've been in this position. Hope, hopefully, everybody's had an opportunity to kind of uh, have something like this happen, where it's your birthday, and like there's only one friend who's called you that day, and they're like, yeah, why don't you come over? And they pretend like they forgot, and you show up, and there's cars everywhere, but all the lights are off, and you're like, I just, I feel like something's gonna happen. <laughs> I just have a sense that something's going to happen. They're like, oh, are you surprised? And it's like, not really. You know, I, I could sense that something was going on. Or maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you've asked your wife or your girlfriend how she's doing, and she has responded, fine. And you just get the sense that maybe things aren't fine. Maybe there might be a little something else going on. I mean, I think we all know the sense that I'm talking about. Am I right? We've all, we all know what it feels like to have a sense. Kind of, We call it that, that feeling in our bones, gut feeling, intuition. We've all got that sense. I just gave an example for the guys, you know, asking a significant female in your life how she's doing. I tried to come up with an example specific for you ladies, but I realized that you sense everything. It's just, I'm trying to think, I'm like, wait a second, y'all sense everything. I mean, you, you like feel where your kids are at any given moment. You, you feel when your friend is sad, you just feel it. You just get a sense of feeling it. You, you feel when a room is homing, you sense everything, and that's amazing. So I couldn't come up with an example other than just saying, I wish I had a dollar for every time a woman said, I could just tell. <laughs> I don't know how much money I'd have, but it'd be a lot more than I have right now. Anybody else believe me? <laughs> Women, you just sense stuff. We all know what it's like to sense stuff. And you know the sense that I'm talking about. And this morning, we're going to be starting, uh, this is going to be week one in a, in a six-week series that we're going to be doing over the next handful of weeks. And I want to build off of this idea of having a sense, of having a sense of something, picking up something in the air, having a hunch that something's about to go down. I want to talk this six, six weeks about having a sense of revival. A sense of revival. I want you to write that on the top of your notes if you got them this morning. If you don't have them out, still time to pull out a notebook, phone, take some notes this morning. We're going to talk about a sense of revival. I want to talk about what? A sense of revival. Because there's this thing in the Bible and Jesus says that he would never leave us or forsake us. And if Jesus is with us, then we ought to live with a sense that anything's possible. He said that when two or three of you get together in my name, I'm going to be there with you. 
So when you come to church, when you come to life group, when you meet with your friend over coffee or over lunch, I hope that you get a sense that God just might have something to do, that God just might have something to say, that God just might have someone to touch, that God just might have something to do in your life. I mean, if he's there, we might as well have a sense that he's about to do something. He may just have a, just have a sense that he's going to speak a word that could change everything in your life. Anybody believe it? I don't know about you, but I believe Jesus is alive. I believe Jesus loves me. I believe Jesus loves you, and I believe he loves every single person on this planet. And I believe that the Bible said that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon us, and that we'd be witnesses to his whole world. And I believe the word of God when it says that he has equipped us with every spiritual blessing, with all that we need for life and godliness. And I believe that if it's true, that if Jesus is God, and if God took on our flesh and our bone to live our life on our planet, to pay our debt to our sin so we could live His life and be filled with His Spirit, then maybe we ought to live with a sense that God's about to do something. A sense that something's about to happen. A sense that God's about to move, that God is maybe doing more than I sense He's doing. Maybe us Christians ought to live with a little sense of revival a sense of revival you no doubt as we talk about senses are familiar with the five human senses I hope you're familiar with all of them it enriches your life we talk about our five senses sight smell taste touch and hearing it's kind of weird how only one of them has like an ing on the end I thought that was weird saying that but you know about these five senses you know these senses, and, and the thing about having a sense of something, when you sense something, it, it's kind of the way that we have a concept. It's what shapes kind of our concept of reality when we have a sense of something. I mean, you know that the meal was good because you tasted it. It was real. You were there. It wasn't a dream. It tasted good. That was reality. You know the meal was good because you tasted it. You know that fire was hot because you touched it. And that's me, like, all the time. I still haven't learned that lesson yet. I love fire. My goodness. Side note, I love fire. <laughs> but you know the fire is hot because you touched it, not just because you looked at it, because you touched it. You know that, that maybe uh, your neighbor just let one rip because you can smell it. Or maybe you know that uh, there's no way that, that, you're, that, that your amazing wife really did marry you, but then you woke up this morning and you saw her, and you just, it's real. It wasn't a dream. Can I get a married man of God to say amen? Praise the Lord this morning. I'm trying to score you some points. There's like two of you that wanted them. I set you up for that but that's okay. <laughs> I want to take the idea, this idea of, of senses, I want to take this week to introduce this sense, this idea, this concept, maybe even this framework of revival this week. I want to set a framework for what we're talking about. And then the five following weeks from now, I want to go into each one of our five senses and dig into what it looks like to live with a sense of revival. What does, what does revival look like? What is it? smell like? That, that's interesting. What's it taste like? What, what's it sound like? What does it feel like? What, what does it mean to really have a sense of revival? So this week may be a little bit of a different kind of message. Um, I don't know, it's, but it's kind of just the introduction. So you'll have to come back for, for some more over these next few weeks. Talking about a sense of revival, I thought, I, ta I thought about talking about this series or titling this series, A Sixth Sense, but then I realized that movie ruined that for everybody and everything. No matter how long ago that came out, you just can't use that 
anymore. So we're sticking with a sense of revival. So this week, I want to set the context for the next handful of weeks that we're going to be together. And, and the, the main thing I want to focus on this morning is just two questions. Two questions that, that may come up that you might have right now already. Or that I would imagine may come up this morning or during the, during the rest of our series. The first question I want to deal with this morning is, what is revival? What is revival? You might be the type of person that just gets super pumped up when anybody says that word. You don't even have a definition for it. You just get excited. Like, yeah, revival, what is it? I don't know, but I'm excited and I want it. You may be that kind of person, or, or you may be just hearing this word, maybe for the first time, or you've heard it maybe in church before, and nobody's ever really explained it to you. It just kind of sounds like a big, maybe charismatic church word, and you're like, yeah, but what, what is revival? Maybe you're just wondering, what in the world are we even talking about? So this morning I want to talk about what is revival? That's the first question. And the second question I want to talk about this morning to give us context for the rest of our time together over the coming weeks is what is revival and what does revival have to do with you? What does revival have to do with me? Revival, like I said, it's a big word. It's an exciting word and all that stuff. But if you're like most normal people, then maybe either already this morning you've had this thought or as we go this morning through the next 25 minutes or so together, you may have this thought that that sounds awesome. Revival sounds really cool now that we've explained what it is. That, that sounds amazing, but, but I've got this thing called a life. And revival sounds awesome, but how does that fit into my life? What does it really have to do with me? What am I supposed to do with this big idea of, of revival? How does revival fit into my life? So two questions this morning as an introduction into our series. Are you ready to go into those two questions this morning? I'm hoping that those are connecting with you. If not, they connect with me, you know. I thought it's a fair question. What is revival? What does revival have to do with me? So number one, we're just going to jump right into this first question. What is Revival. What is revival? We're going to be talking about a sense of revival. So what, what is revival? There's a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who you may have heard his name before, but he's kind of a big name pastor, theologian that, that was alive a couple hundred years ago, and he still is a big deal in the church, church today. He was a, a, a help, helpful guy that put a lot of good terms or a lot of good things for us as a church, and he had a definition of revival. I'm going to give it to you. You don't need to write it down, but hopefully you can get the concept. His, his definition of revival was, revival is to live again, to live again, or, or to receive again a life that has almost been expired. He finished his definition this way, to rekindle into a flame a vital spark that has almost been extinguished. He speaks better than me. Revival, the idea of new life, of either new life, when we talk about revival, it's either this idea of new life or of fresh life being breathed into something that maybe once was vibrant but is faded. What is revival? That, that's Spurgeon's definition of revival. Jesus kind of gave us a definition of revival, I think. He didn't maybe use the word revival, but in John chapter 10, he's talking to his disciples about who he is and what he came to do and what he came to bring to people. And in John chapter 10, he says, he says this. He says, the thief comes, to, comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He doesn't use the word revival here, 
But I believe that, that Jesus is talking about this concept. You can, I think you can see the similarity between what Jesus is saying here and maybe Spurgeon's definition. And they work together to give us a good definition of revival. He's saying in a world of, in a world of pain, in a world of death, in a world of destruction. So there's, there's that idea of death or being stolen from, maybe a, a fading spark. In a world like that, I've come to give life. I've come to give new life. I've come to breathe on sparks that have been faded. I've come to put life into what once was dead. Jesus gives us this definition of revival in saying that revival is when God brings something to life that was dead. Revival is the gospel. We could sum it up maybe that way. Revival is the gospel because the, the gospel, the good news, the reason we're here this morning, the reason Jesus is a big deal to us is that we believe that we were dead to sin. We were dead to sin. We, we had no life inside of us, but, but by the grace of God, we're made alive in Christ. He took us from death to life. We were born into sin, but Jesus allowed us to be born again this concept of being revived, being born again, not just in our flesh, but in the spirit of God and to be adopted as his children. Revival, the, the idea of revival isn't, isn't anything new. It's, it is the gospel. So what, what is revival? Maybe you could write this definition now as we work with it over these coming weeks. Revival is the life of God in a broken world. Revival is the life of God in a broken world. I don't know if you know this or not, but our nation, the United States, actually has an incredibly rich history of revival. Incredibly rich history of revival. And that gets me really excited. I've always sort of been interested in history. And when I like to read on my free time, this is the stuff I read about. What, what has God done specifically in our nation? I love knowing what has happened before our day. And I wish that we could spend six weeks just doing a history lesson. But I don't know that everybody would be all that helped by that. But maybe we can get lunch and talk about it. So we're not going to spend all six weeks looking, up, looking back, although when we look back, if we did spend six weeks, I think it'd stir you up. I think it'd blow your mind. It'd probably stretch your theology a little bit. At least it does mine. When I realize some of the crazy stuff God has done, I realize that doesn't fit in my church box. He's always doing something, and I think it'd be great, but, but I don't want to look back for the next six weeks because, like I said, looking back is great, and looking back has its place, but, but, but I want us to look forward in these six weeks. Not only does our nation have a great history of revival, so I know we're not going to do history for the next six weeks, but this morning we're going to do a bit of a history lesson. We're going to do a bit of a history lesson that you didn't learn in school. So there's this chapter in the Bible, uh, Hebrews 11. It's, it's Hebrews 11, and it's kind of known in Christians as like the Hall of Faith. And, and it's this whole chapter that's really dedicated to telling the, the ancient revival history. The revival history in the ancient world. It's a whole chapter looking back. And it lists kind of all these massive people of faith throughout ancient history. It mentions, um, it mentions Noah, who maybe you know, maybe you don't. But, but Noah built an ark to protect all of righteousness for like the whole planet. He, he kept righteousness alive. as a big name. If there's a hall of faith. He ought to be in it. Amen. Noah. He, they talk about Noah. He talks about Abraham and Sarah, who are this couple who are old and barren and homeless, but God promised to make them a great nation, and he promised to bless every family on the planet of the earth through this old, barren, homeless couple. 
It talks about Joseph, who was uh, the youngest of 12 brothers, sold into slavery. But he was faithful, and he didn't stop believing that God had put a promise on his life. And he ends up raising to be the second in command in the greatest nation on earth at the time. And he uses his position of influence to save the nation of Israel from famine. It's a big deal. It's a, it's a big name, Joseph. He talks about Moses, who led the people out of Egypt. He split the Red Sea so they could walk through on dry ground. And, and then it came back over all their enemies. And it's like those songs we were singing. God fought for them. God fought for them. And talks about how he brought them out of Egypt and he put them in the position to move in to the promise of God that we just spent the last three weeks talking about. It lists so many, so many more people. So we see in Hebrews 11 that there's a, there's a deep ancient history of revival. And we see that it, it's good to look back and be encouraged by the past. It's good to look back. And like I said, in our nation, we have a great history of revival. And I think that, you know, in some ways we can almost come up with like our own sort of American U.S. version of Hebrews 11. Like, uh, don't take this heretically, but if they wrote a Bible about this stupid... You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. They can, we can kind of come up with our own little version of, of Hebrews chapter 11. So I'm going to give you a little bit of history lesson, like I said, that you probably didn't hear in school. And I hope at the end of this you will be wishing that you would have heard it in school. Because it's just that cool. It's just that cool. So this may or may not be your thing, but it's going to be encouraging. So like I said, we've got a deep history of revival in this country. And this is actually really ironic to me, considering like this last week. But believe it or not, the, the, the start of our history with revival as a nation really starts with a little group of refugees. It starts with a little group of, of German refugees. If that's not relevant for today, how crazy is that? Germany, like the center of refugees on the world right now? I wonder what nation is going to have a revival birth in Germany amongst some refugees in 2017. But ours wasn't in 2017. In 1727, there was a group of 300 German refugees. There's a people group called the Moravians. And they settled on this rich guy's land because they had been sent out of their homes. There's three, about 300 of them, and they started a prayer meeting in 1727 that uh, went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 100 years. This group of 300 people started a 100-year prayer meeting. Not only did they pray, but what was birthed out of this prayer meeting really was like the first evangelical mission movement in the modern world. They sent out hundreds of missionaries over, these, over this 100 years because they started praying and believing for God to move and they couldn't help but get a burden. I mean, you got to read stories about these people. They were, they were amazing. They were crazy. Just a group of refugees that decided to pray. And there was one Moravian in particular who uh, is significant for us in the United States in our, in our history. His name is, is Peter Bowler. His name is Peter Bowler. He's a Moravian. And he uh, was obviously part of the little refugee community, but then he ended up studying at Oxford for a little while. And he became, with these two, he became friends with these two British brothers, who's, and, and he led them to Jesus in their time at Oxford. He, he led these two brothers to Jesus, and their names were Charles and John Wesley. Charles and John Wesley. Charles Wesley would go on to write over 6,000 6, hymns over the course of his life. And he is really looked at one of the fathers of even our worship movement today, the idea of, of songwriting and lifting praise to God and using worship as a way of declaring who God is and what he's like and what it means for us. 
It's a little guy named Charles Wesley. And his brother, John, he did a few things too. John Wesley went on to found this whole denomination in the church called the Methodists that right now today has about 80 million members. 80 million people because of what this guy started. Now, when we talk about denominations and all that stuff, you may have one opinion or another about Methodists or the idea of denominations, but I don't want to get caught up in that this morning because what we can't get away from is that the Methodists and what John Wesley started was what launched the first church planning movement on North American soil in all of history. He and his people, they started planning little house churches all up and down the, the British settlements before the Revolutionary War. It had been about the, the, the 1730s. So the United States wasn't even a nation yet, and God was launching church planting movements up and down the eastern seaboard. After the Revolutionary War, the Methodists still stuck around. Some amazing history here. But they had this group of guys called circuit riders. I don't know if you've ever heard about circuit riders, but these guys are out of their minds. Circuit riders were these guys who decided they wanted to spend their lives literally on horseback. And they would travel not only up and down the eastern seaboard, but they, would, they literally logged hundreds of thousands of miles on horseback as they would follow settlers west because they didn't want anybody going west who couldn't hear the gospel. They knew the nation was expanding, so the gospel had to expand. They had to see churches planted. They didn't start in buildings. They would ride hundreds of thousands of miles throughout the course of their ministry to go stop at homes. They'd hear about a settlement. They'd see smoke off in the distance, and they'd say, that's where I'm going. And Western uh, pioneers actually uh, had, a, is, had a saying about them on, on really bad weather days when nobody wanted to go out, when even the Western pioneers didn't want to go pioneer. They would look at each other, and they would say, well, there's nothing out today but crows and Methodist preachers. <laughs> one guy, Charles Finney, he was the leader of the, he was one of the first circuit riders, rode 250,000 miles on horseback. It ruined him. But there's a record in Washington of, uh, I think it's the six, some of the, the six most influential people on American culture, and his name is listed. In fact, much of the first mapping of all the Western territories of the United States was done by circuit riders, because they were the ones covering all the ground. It's incredible. So that's John and Charles Wesley. They meet Peter Bowler, but there was another guy in this friend group uh, of John and Charles that, that were impacted by this Moravian Peter Bowler. There's another British guy, his name was George Whitfield. George Whitfield. George Whitfield is still today known as one of the most dynamic preachers in modern history. And he spent a lot of time not only just preaching around British, but he was also coming to the Americas at the same time around the Wesleys to preach the gospel among the British settlements. He was one of the first guys to introduce open air preaching in North America. Everybody else was trying to get into buildings, and he was like, well, what if we went outside? And he would, he would begin preaching, and, and he, was a, he was a dynamic preacher. He was, he was expressive, but, but not only that, he would start preaching outside, and thousands of people would gather, and he would preach to thousands outside with no microphone, no speakers, no amplification whatsoever. And he could be heard by thousands. George Whitfield ended up becoming friends, so we're, we're, we're sticking with the friend thing here. So George Whitfield, in his time in the, in the British settlements, he became friends with a, another kind of a, a more American guy, though America still didn't exist yet, but you know what I'm talking about, a New England guy. His name was Jonathan Edwards. George Whitfield struck up a friendship with a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And the two, those two guys, and, and they would become the two leading voices in what is known in history as the First Great Awakening. 
With a name like that, it had to have been significant. The first great awakening, it talks about the first time that the gospel came alive in the Americas. These two guys, these two guys were the leading voices. It lasted for about 30 years, this first great awakening. And Jonathan Edwards has universities named after him. He had kids and descendants that became some of the most significant writers in our nation, vice presidents, I mean, all kinds of stuff. He was a, a brilliant theologian and, and honestly is still esteemed as one of the, the highest theological minds to ever come out of North America. Before we were even a country. It's amazing. So all of this happened before the Revolutionary War. All of this happened on our soil before we even officially existed. God must have been paving the way for something. And it all came out of a prayer meeting of a couple hundred German refugees. After the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, revival didn't stop. I'm encouraged by that. I mentioned the first Great Awakening. After we became a nation, there was the second Great Awakening. Started in about the 1790s and it lasted until about the 1840s, about 50 years of another great awakening of a move of God in our nation. And not only was it in New England, like the first great awakening primarily was, but because the nation was expanding, there was pockets of a revival all over the country as it was being discovered. And it included, one of the things that happened in the Second Great Awakening, I love this, this part. There was a few consecutive years, right at the turn of the 1800s, where uh, for, for a couple consecutive years, for several weeks in consecutive summers, as many as 20,000 settlers gathered in Kentucky for a couple of weeks at a time to live out of their uh, covered wagons and live in fields to worship and preach and see God move. 20,000 people, no stadium, no speakers, come from hundreds of miles around because of what God was doing. And that was happening in Kentucky around the 1800s, but the Second Great Awakening is marked by events like that happening for decades. It's incredible. That's the turn of the 1800s. When we fast forward to the turn of the 1900s, something similar began to break out in a little rundown building in Los Angeles on Azusa Street. Something called the Azusa Street Revival happened in 1906 and what happened in this little hut of a mixed race group of people birthed really what kind of is known as sort of the charismatic movement around the world right now and woke up the belief in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our nation. It reawoke it. Out of what happened at Azusa Street, uh, though, though what happened in Azusa Street didn't kind of officially last all that long, what it launched was undeniable. For the rest of the 1900s, for the rest of the 20th century, because of what happened at Azusa Street, people were, were, were coming around every, every decade or so, these amazing, uh, amazing healing revivalists who would fill stadiums with people and see the sick healed and demonstrate the power of God. Then there was a guy named Martin Luther King Jr. who led the civil rights movement. I believe that fits in the category of revival, amen? guy named Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1900s. And there was, a, there was a guy named Billy Graham. Maybe you've heard of him. He came along and filled stadiums preaching the gospel and, and seeing people saved and come to Jesus like our nation really had never even seen. Not only are there those guys, there's many, many examples of God doing incredible, incredible things in our nation all throughout our history. The history of revival in our nation, the history of revival in Hebrews chapter 11 is absolutely incredible. 
And I love looking back. I love the history of it. I love to look and see what God has done. I believe it's useful and it's powerful to understand where we come from. But, the, but chapter 11 ends with some powerful words in Hebrews 11. Ends with some powerful words in verse 39 at 40 and 40. It says, And all these, speaking of these people, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. Somebody say us. Us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hebrews 11 lists all these incredible people. Not to say, wow, look at the good old days. But to say, look at the amazing things that have happened. And what God did then, he didn't finish. He wants to include you in on it. He wants to include you in on it. Everything listed in Hebrews chapter 11, it wasn't complete. It was paving the way for what would happen after Hebrews chapter 11. And if that's true, then maybe what happened in Hebrews chapter 11 was paving the way for what's happened through our history as a nation. And maybe what's happened in our history as a nation isn't complete. Maybe it's not done. Maybe it's just paving the way for what God wants to do in our day. Maybe it's not done. Maybe it's not just a history lesson. Maybe it ought to encourage us and fuel us for going forward. Maybe it ought to put in us a sense of revival. If you continue reading the following verses after the end of Hebrews chapter 11, I think the Bible makes this truth so clear that God's not done yet. Right after Hebrews chapter 11, the first word of Hebrews chapter 12 is therefore. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, because of all of these amazing things that have happened in our past, let us also, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Somebody say before us. Set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 11 looks back, and Hebrews chapter 12 says, don't get stuck looking back. I want you to look forward. Look forward. Because of everything that's behind us, let us lay aside everything that would slow us down in the race that is before us. What is behind you ought to fuel you for what is before you. Past didn't happen so we could build monuments. The, hap the past happened so we'd be encouraged to build movements. Let's not get caught up in what's behind and forget what is before. And this leads me to our second question that we want to talk about this morning. We've been talking about what is revival and question number two is what does revival have to do with you? What does revival have to do with you? All this stuff is incredible, right? I mean, wow, it's amazing. And there's a lot of this stuff even happening in our, in our day, right now in our nation. You don't have to look far to see God doing incredible things. Revival, it sounds awesome. It's stretching, maybe confusing. We may not know what to do with all of it, but, it's, but it sounds awesome. So what is, but what does it have to do with you? Well, what it has to do with you is that, that, that you live in a world that needs revival. That's what it's got to do with you. That's what it's got to do with me and with us. We live in a world that needs revival. And I don't just mean the, the current crazy refugee situation. I don't just mean human trafficking or poverty, homelessness, addiction. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and we know that, that we need revival for those things, right? I mean, God knows we need revival for these things. 
But not just for those things. We don't live in a world just because of those things that needs revival. We live in a world because even just for some of you, your marriage needs revival. For some of you, your your parenting or, or, or your relationship with one of your kids, it could use some revival. It could use some reviving. Your hope needs to be revived. Your confidence needs to be revived. Your faith, you may just have a spark of what used to be vibrant. You need revival. Our world needs revival, and our lives need revival. The good news is is that our God specializes in raising the dead. That's the good news. Like we talked about at the beginning, the good news is the good news. Jesus is revival. And I believe that in our time, what God's going to do in our time, in our day, I believe that it's not just going to be an evangelistic revival like we've seen in our history. I believe it's not just going to be a healing revival like we've seen in our history. I believe it's absolutely going to, we're going to see the sick healed like never before. We're going to see people who don't know Jesus give their lives to Jesus like never before. But it's not going to be just a healing revival or an evangelistic revival. I believe God is ready for a kingdom revival. God is ready for a kingdom revival. It's going to include the healing of the sick and the lost being saved, but it's going to be a revival of the kingdom of God and the rule of reign of God in every area of society, in every aspect of our lives. It will include all of these things that we've seen, but it will encompass everything. It's time for a kingdom revival. And I believe with everything in me that the way God's going to facilitate the kingdom revival that he wants to see on the planet It's going to be slightly different than maybe what we've seen in the past. I don't think it's going to be primarily through pastors on Sundays on a stage. I think it's going to primarily be Christians exactly where they are during the week. That's how God's going to facilitate a kingdom revival. I believe that God isn't looking for the next Billy Graham to fill a stadium. I believe he's looking for a Christian to fill his situation. I believe God's not waiting for you to be the next Billy Graham. He's waiting for you to fill your situation. I believe there's going to be stadiums filled. I love big gatherings. I think I'm I'm a firm believer that every stadium you see built was built for Jesus. It was built for the preaching of the gospel, whether it was intentionally or not. I believe that 100%, but I don't believe it's going to be the primary vehicle anymore. I believe the stadiums will be a response of what happens in your situation. You might be wondering, what's revival got to do with me? I'm not like all these people. I'm not like all these guys. I've got a life. I don't even know if I believe all this stuff. I've never seen anything like that. This is where you're at. But what it has to do with you is it's okay that you're not Billy Graham because your kids don't need Billy Graham. Your kids need you. Your coworkers don't need John Wesley. They need you. Your neighborhood, your campus doesn't need George Whitfield. It needs you. What if all God is looking for is for you to be exactly who you are, exactly where you are? What if that's, God, what if that's all that God needs for revival? I love the big gatherings, like I said, but what if we were a church that didn't just gather, what if we scattered? What if we really went everywhere that we went? What if every Christian in our city didn't just show up to church on Sunday, but showed up into every situation with a sense of revival? 
I want you to stand up this morning as we close together. I've just got a sense of revival. I can sense it. And as we close this morning, I want to give you two things as we wrap up our time. I'm going to take a drink. Is that okay? I'm going to give you two things, and this is honestly a little bit of homework for you over the next six weeks. A little bit of homework this morning. Two things. The first thing is, over the next six weeks, I want you to pray, pray this short prayer every day. This short prayer. It's simple. No, I had you stand up. Maybe you need to write it down, but it should be easy enough. Lord, give me a sense of revival today, everywhere I go and in everything I do. What if we prayed it every day for the next six weeks? God would, I don't know what to do. I can't make all this stuff up. I can't make this happen. But Lord, would you give me a sense of revival today in everything I do and in everywhere I go? And I want you to pray that prayer because you are allowed to believe that over the next six weeks, your marriage is going to see the revival that it needs. Sometimes we sit around waiting for it to happen, but I just want to end this morning letting you know what you're allowed to do. You are allowed to see revival in your marriage. You are allowed to see some of your coworkers come to Jesus in these next six weeks. You are allowed to believe that your kids might just have a deeper hunger for God in these next six weeks than you do. You are allowed to believe for that. You are allowed to believe that that relationship in your life, that, that relationship with your child, with your family, with that friend that's been, that's been dead for a long time could be revived with the fire that it once had. You're allowed to believe for these things. You're allowed to experience a depth in relationship with God that you've never even dreamed of. And you are allowed to believe in your life as a Christian that God has put you where he's put you on purpose. That you're not an accident, that your situation isn't an accident and maybe we don't need to wait for something to change. We just need to live with a sense of revival. I want you to pray this prayer every day over the next six weeks because what's the worst that could happen? That's number one. Number two, you can respond to this right now as we do this last song together. I want you to take time over this last song in our final minutes and our time together this morning. This is going to feel like a big risk for, for some of you maybe, but I want you to pray. I want you to ask God. I want you to think about two or three people in your life right now that need to experience the life of Jesus, who need revival, who need the life of God in their broken world. I want you to think about two or three people in your life that need revival right now. And I want you to take the next six weeks to be intentional with them. That's really broad. Just take six weeks and give them some time. Give them some thought. Give them some prayer. Give them some effort. Pray for them. Shoot them a text every couple of days and just say, hey, I just hope you're doing well. I'm praying for you. You're great. Just start there. Have them over for dinner. Get to know them a little bit. Take them out to lunch. Buy them a cup of coffee. Invite them to church. Invite them to life group. Invite them over for the Super Bowl. Just something. Something. Because they need the life of God in their broken world. And you know what you have? The life of God. You have what they need. And I'm not asking you to take six weeks and take two or three people and take them as a Christian church project. It's not what I'm asking. That's not what I'm asking for you to do. I'm asking you to take a step, a risk for some of you into an act of love, into an act of friendship and recognize the truth 
that we've got what the world's looking for. And with a little bit of intentionality and a little bit of a sense of revival, we may just see something that the world's never seen before. I know you don't know what to say. I know that you've got your own stuff to work through. But in all love, who cares? Not God. He didn't wait for you to get perfect before he filled you with his spirit. And he doesn't need you to be perfect before you reach out to somebody in your life. You know how to be a friend. So you can just start there. Amen? Why don't you pray a little prayer? Lord, would you give me a sense of revival today in everything I do and everywhere I go? And God, who are two or three people in my life? Maybe it's not an accident we're friends. Maybe I don't need to wait for somebody else to offer them what I already have. I pray for us as we go into one more song this morning. Why don't you go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes and I pray for you. And before I pray, I want to just leave the invitation for you. You may, you may need a bit of revival in your life right now. Maybe you've never experienced the life of Jesus in your broken world. And you're here this morning and saying, I don't know where this goes from here, but I know I need Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you've experienced the life of Jesus, but that Spurgeon definition just makes a lot of sense. I've just got a fading spark of what used to be alive. And if that's you this morning, either one of those camps where you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time, or you just need this morning to raise your hand and say, no, I'm going to step into a new revival in these next six weeks. I want you to raise your hand right now if that's you. If you need revival, there we go, amen. One way or another, I'm going to pray for you guys. Amen. I want to pray for us, like I said, and again, I want you to take these few minutes. God, who are the people? What are the faces? What are the names? What are the situations? that you're ready to bring revival into. Lord, I thank you for every life in this room. I thank you, Lord, for every friendship represented, every family represented, every workplace. God, I thank you for every broken situation that we immediately are connected to right now, that we don't have to go look out and find, we don't have to go look for. We don't have to ask you to bring into our lap. We're right there. We're right there, God. God, I ask that we would live with a sense of revival. That this church, Lord, that this city will be a city known. That if you show up there, man, it just feels like something's always about to happen. But I pray that we believe that our breakthrough is right there. That our neighbor's breakthrough is right there. Our co-worker's breakthrough is right there. I pray that we'd see people as hungry for Jesus. Pray that you'd go before us. Would you come behind us? God, I ask that this six weeks will be like nothing we've ever seen. Lord, would you give us faith in Jesus' name? Would you teach us, Lord? And so, Lord, we ask, would you give us a sense of revival today and every day and everywhere we go and in everything we do? And God, right now, would you speak and by the Holy Spirit names and faces to every single one of us that you've placed in our life exactly on purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.